to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Today, we're talking Russia, the big bad boogeyman behind every story in 2018. Um, But rather than focusing on Trump and the media circus, we're going to talk about what's actually going on in Russia this week's presidential election, what drives Russia's increasingly activist foreign policy, and the future of US-Russia relations. Um, So joining us today is Matt Rajansky, director of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center here in DC. He's had a a long and interesting career working on Russia-related issues, and so we're hoping that he'll have some answers for these difficult questions. And right up front, I should state that uh, Matt is speaking for himself, his personal opinions, not for his employer or for the US government in any capacity. But thank you for being here regardless. Thanks, Emma. It's really a privilege to be on your podcast. I'm a big fan of the work you guys do. So as always, we'll we'll get started um, with just a couple of quick news bits from the last week. And it's been kind of a crazy news week in foreign policy, as always in Trump land. Um, But I guess the big story since the last time we talked is this North Korea meeting that Trump might actually sit down and meet with Kim Jong-un. What do we think? Well, from my perspective, uh, you know, obviously... Uh, dialogue negotiation uh, is is better ultimately than uh, what may or may not even be possible, which is which is a potential military solution. But I think there's a, a misconception about the nature of negotiation. So even saying we're not going to talk is in effect part of a negotiation. And so we have in that sense been negotiating with North Korea for some time. They have been changing facts on the ground. Uh, We, to some extent, continue to adjust facts on the ground by either reinforcing our military presence in the region, we'll send carrier battle groups, we'll do exercises. So we're attempting to adjust the landscape for negotiations, whether we're speaking to one another or not. And so I think now where the expectation for dialogue is, of course, is there's been a sort of declaration of willingness to talk, which in that sense is consistent with actually where the Obama administration was. Um, But with the caveat, if the North Koreans show some kind of demonstrable progress towards denuclearization or readiness towards denuclearization, um, again, all of that's a negotiation. So in that sense, the negotiation is taking place. I think, again, there's a misconception that, you know, we have yet to begin to negotiate. We're actually negotiating right now. I think one of the interesting questions, and I I think those are great points. I I think for me, one of the interesting questions I've been trying to figure out, I I saw Henry Kissinger quoted as saying, well, you know, it wouldn't have been the way I did it, but, you know, maybe Trump's gotten him to talk and, you know, and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, for those who are still trying to hold out hope that Trump is going to be good at doing this president thing, this is the kind of argument that you're hearing. It says, see, if he hadn't been so tough and rearranged the facts on the ground, North Korea never would have come to the table. That's one hypothesis. It could be true. Uh, Another hypothesis, though, that I'm kind of concerned is more likely to be true is that North Korea's rearranging of the facts on the ground uh, hit a point a.k.a. they now have enough confidence in their nuclear capability, now they're willing to sit down and have conversations. But the question then is conversations about what? Uh, I doubt that their goal is to denuclearize during the Trump administration. I think there's also an interesting argument to be made that by meeting with Kim Jong-un and meeting with Kim Jong-un up front 
that Trump is actually giving away something the North Koreans value quite highly, um, not not necessarily before negotiations have started, because as you point out, we're kind of in that process already, but he's he's giving them something they really want before they've actually agreed to, to do anything for it. And so while I'm all for diplomacy, I think the sort of high-level meeting is, is a little strange in that context. I just would offer a reminder of the concept of momentum. Momentum is extremely important in any negotiation or engagement between, you know, individual actors, but also between states. And by opening this portfolio and setting expectations, opening with a pretty major initial salvo, the Trump administration is beginning some momentum. The question is whether it maintains that momentum. And if the momentum stops, it's going to be a perception of failure, whether in fact there's a policy failure there or not. In other words, the world doesn't necessarily get worse, but it would be a perceived failure if that momentum stops. And so I think, uh, you know, the Obama administration had this experience around Syria. So actually, there was a certain kind of policy victory in terms of getting chemical weapons out of Syria back in 2012. But because the administration began the momentum towards a military strike and declared declared a red line and then stopped it, the perception was weakness, failure, defeat. So I think they have to be very, now in the Trump administration, very cognizant of that risk. Yeah. Well, the other area that they seem to have momentum towards is unfortunately some kind of trade war. Um, And so our other news story of the day is that Trump has or will soon have a new senior economic advisor. I believe Larry Kudlow has been rumored, though he's not actually been named. Um, Gary Cohn quit in protest over Trump's steel tariffs from a couple of weeks ago. And it, it really does seem like Trump is determined to sort of take on U.S. allies on the question of trade. Yeah, the 1980s are calling they want their trade war back. I don't, it, I don't see any way that tariffs do not provoke responses from China and others. Yeah, the concern that that I have heard from uh, colleagues who talk a lot with major European uh, allies is that the uh, the major European economies cannot but retaliate if this happens. And and of course, my concern, thinking primarily about Russia and the East, is you know we don't really have a U.S.-Russia relationship anymore, except the one that runs through the transatlantic alliance. I mean, that really is the core of the U.S.-Russia relationship. Our sanctions wouldn't mean much without European cooperation. Uh, Our military presence on on the European continent is really not very much without NATO's forces considered, etc. So if we begin to see the breakdown of transatlantic unity on one topic or several topics, even if those topics are not Russia, uh, the overspill into the Russia and Eastern Europe issue, I think, might be coming soon. You know, it's actually already happened um, in terms of European retaliation. So uh, the uh, I believe the European Union announced some retaliatory sanctions in exchange for these, these steel tariffs. Um, and they're really narrowly focused. They clearly had them sitting on a shelf ready to go in response to this. Um, they're targeting Harley-Davidson blue jeans. And I forget what the third one is. It might be apple pie. Um, but they're not just narrowly tailored to be sort of classic American things. These are things that are made in the districts of Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. Bourbon. That's what it is. It was bourbon. Mm. So I also feel like Trump is playing a game here and he's not playing it at the same level as some of the other participants. To me, this this is yet another horrible reminder of of Trump's ignorance about how foreign affairs works. You know, withdrawing from the TPP, trade wars, you know, Matt, you made a good point. Trade is not just about trade. Trade has other 
effects, other consequences. Trade relationships can have important, uh, you know, foreign policy consequences for security, for cooperation on other issues, certainly in terms of Russia and China. And Trump is a, apparently just totally uninterested or unaware that these things are connected. Well, uh, that, that's one we'll have to keep watching in the near future. Um, but now I'd, I'd really like to turn to our main topic of the day, because I actually think a lot of the news in the last week has been about Russia. Um, and so one of the, the biggest news stories, obviously, involved the attempted poisoning and assassination of a Russian defector, a former spy on British soil using a highly toxic nerve agent that the Russians had developed. And so, I mean, even for a country that is frequently known to kill defectors, take retaliatory measures against them, particularly in the UK, but they've also done it here in the US, um, the use of this nerve agent seems like a really big step. So I guess, what is the Kremlin thinking? Well, uh, (laughs) I'm almost always uh, unwilling to answer the what's in Putin's head question, and it is almost always the first question. Um, And that's understandable because, of course, this is a system. Look, Putin called it a power vertical, a dictatorship of laws, managed democracy. Uh, It is now probably simulated democracy more than anything. This is a system that Putin runs through what's called manual control. Um, So there's a certain possibility that Putin ordered a strike. Uh, I would point out one almost technical issue. If he did, he didn't order it the day before it happened. Uh, This is something that takes a heck of a lot of preparation. And so it may have been something more like a standing order, uh, a message to the security services of which Putin himself, as we we know very well, is a product that says, look, uh, in the interests of national pride, in the interests of uh, sending a message to all of our current agents and operatives, you have carte blanche to take out people you perceive as traitors. And and that may even apply to someone like Skripal, who supposedly had a deal, who was actually exchanged um, and may therefore have considered himself safe. No one is safe. And that was the message that Putin authorized sending, you know, maybe months ago, maybe years ago. And this is when the operation came to, together. That's sort of the theory of, of um, you know, kind of the machine that Putin has built that uh, is almost a force beyond his direct control. There's another possibility, though, which is that, uh, you know, senior officials of the GRU uh, or whoever executed this attack, which is, I think, beyond doubt, uh, has all the hallmarks of having been a state intelligence hit. Um, you know, they, they went to Putin for the final green light at the 11th hour, and he said yes. Now, why would he have said yes on the eve of elections? Um, I think the the one compelling way in which we could understand this is that there's a difference between this 2018 election or simulated election and his 2012 election when there was quite a lot of doubt about whether he'd get turnout, whether he'd get the percentage that he needed for this sort of exercise in, in um, simulated legitimacy. Uh, this time, the, the state really made a lot of effort to turn out his base. And his base, in terms of foreign policy at least, is primarily motivated by a Russia under siege narrative. What is the single best way to establish that narrative in the critical days before an election. It's to goad Western leaders into doing and saying things which may or may not really damage Russia's interests in the short term or the long term, but that absolutely undergird and substantiate what Putin's been saying all along, which is the West is out to get us. The fact that it's triggered by something that Russia did actually quickly gets overlooked by the Russian media narrative, which at the end of the day is controlled by the Kremlin anyway. Again, I I, I don't know if Putin is thinking this, but that's the only way I can understand it if, in fact, he gave the green light for this a week before the election. Fake news, Russian style. 
Yeah, so that this is really interesting, and I, I guess we should just segue into the domestic politics questions here, because obviously Putin was uh, re-elected this weekend. Big, big surprise there. Um, obviously, it was not a free and fair election. He received seventy-six point seven percent of the vote uh, with a 67.5% turnout. The Kremlin had said that they wanted a 70-70 election, so it looks like they apparently came very close to their targets. Um, But despite the fact it wasn't free and fair, I think it is still interesting to talk about what's motivating Russian voters. And so you mentioned one possibility that the base is really motivated by this sort of foreign policy um, idea that Russia is under siege and circled by NATO or other countries. Are there other big issues at play here? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that uh, a Russian election is an issue election um, in the same way that an American election could be a wave election because of an issue. Um, Russian elections tend to be much more almost ceremonial. Uh, They are about the exercise and the process of kind of going to a polling station. Um, They always happen on Sundays. uh, And so therefore, you know, people are free uh, to obviously not be working, maybe to uh, enjoy a tipple of something uh, when they go to vote. Um, We've seen photos of these elaborate uh, buffet spreads at polling stations. So it's very much about kind of the pageantry and the process. Um, And then uh, will be followed by Putin's re-inauguration for now, arguably a fifth term, but certainly at least a fourth term as president, which will be all about pageantry. You know, it'll be in the palace, in the Kremlin, lots of gold. And so I think Russians are not thinking about, well, what is going to change or stay the same as a result of my vote? I think they're thinking about what ought this to look like in a great nation like ours? And if in the process of going in to vote, uh, they please their supervisor at work, who may have asked them the preceding Thursday or Friday, uh, hey, would you like some time off? Maybe next week, maybe, you know, Friday afternoon, go ahead and vote, enjoy your weekend. Um, Hey, so much the better if they enjoy a nice buffet. Um, And at the end of the day, Life in Russia is not great for a lot of people, uh, but it isn't bad enough. And and we've seen so many times in Russian history before where it's where it's been much much worse um, that people are prepared to overturn the entire system on mass. And Putin has been very very effective at reading exactly where that balance needs to be. Um, bumping up pensions just enough so that people feel satisfied and doing it with sort of perfect sense of timing. Yeah, so he, he has seemed to manage the system pretty well. Um, and as you say, we're, we're heading into another six-year term for him. I guess that the big question that sort of Russia watchers are debating at the moment isn't really, um, you know, will Putin be elected? Will, will he, whatever. It's it's what comes next. Um, and so I've, I've heard several people express this idea that really the, the competition is going to start after this election. Is Putin you know, a lame duck president? Is he going to somehow depart in these six years? Is he going to find a way to become dictator for life? Is he going to inaugurate the search for some kind of successor? And right now it's not at all clear who that would be. And so, I mean, I think that's really the more interesting question is where where does this go next for Russia's domestic political system? No, it is it is the interesting question. And as, uh, as a colleague of mine has said, it's the March 19th question. Um, and that's because, like financial markets, uh, Russian politics, maybe anyone's politics, uh, you know, prices in future uncertainty. 
And so the first question that everyone in the system, both those observing and analyzing the system, uh, which includes big big business, international, and Russian uh, major providers of jobs, as well as players within the government itself, immediately start to ask this question. Um, now, this question has a special character. And in order to understand the what's next question, we have to understand the system itself. Um, I described what Putin had built earlier as a power vertical, as a managed democracy, manual control, whatever you want to call it. Um, but the, the key to that is to understand that he has eliminated portfolio theory from the system. So in other words, there is not any longer an independent civil society. There is not an independent church. There is not an independent private sector. Everything has been brought under the pyramid of state power, which of course he sits at the pinnacle. What that means is he has much more control over the system. He can bend it and use it uh, to his purposes. Uh, but it also means there's no resiliency. So if some one part of the system begins to cause a crack or a failure in that edifice that he's created, uh, the entire thing could collapse and there's nothing left to backstop it. And so what that means is any choice, whether you're talking about a personnel change or you're talking about rolling out a big policy initiative, remember this question of momentum, right? Looking like you're a winner and you're still winning, right? Anything where there's a risk of something going wrong is not just a threat to some small part of the system that can be isolated and excised, right? Like imagine a, a sex scandal around an American politician. Okay, fine. Well, that guy or that gal gets canned and we move on to the next one, right? It is a threat to the integrity of the system as a whole because the system's completely unitary. And so that's what makes the March 19th question so interesting. Um, one more point on this, which is when, when Putin attempted the so-called castling maneuver uh, in 2007 and puts Medvedev forward as the sort of temporary caretaker president, what he learned relatively quickly was that even by signaling with, by some measures, the, the weakest figurehead he could possibly have chosen. The one man who, by the way, I think this is non-negligible, the only man around the cabinet table who was actually shorter than he was, but also by, by any measure, you know, much younger, less experienced, not viewed as a, as a strong man, no security services background, right? He's an iPad-wielding lawyer. Um, and yet, nonetheless, forces began to accumulate around Medvedev in this sort of orbit uh, where simply the fact that Medvedev was there became a reason for division within the system, which was an inherent threat to the system itself and thus to Putin. And that is what is unacceptable. And to, to speculate that that might happen again after March 19th is potentially the scariest thing that Putin is thinking about right now today. Now, I, I, it's, you, know, you said earlier, you know, things aren't bad enough. Uh, and, and combined with and it reminds me of that the old, you know, line. There's a lot of ruin in a nation, and I think maybe more in Russia than most. Um, but the other thought that it triggers is that you know, I guess in in our imagination, revolutions often happen in sort of grassroots and so on and so forth. But that that's not really, I think, where most revolutions start. I think you need an upper middle class that's upset, energized, empowered. Um, and Putin has been really good at just digging away at all the tools the middle class would need to organize, to push back, to question. Um, so, but, but eventually, most sort of fascist and communist systems fall apart. Are there some, what are the pathways whereby, you know, this lack of resilience, but what, what will be the chink in the armor that, that causes this to crumble? 
Well, you know, again, the, the prediction questions are, are inherently impossible. It's, it's like the Mark Twain rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. I mean, how many times have we said, all right, this is Putin's last whatever? And it hasn't been. Um, and, you know, he's already passed the actuarial lifespan of the average Russian male, and he lives very healthily and has access to the best health care. So, you know, he's probably going to be around and, and capable for some time to come. Um, you know, he has shown a kind of nominal respect for the Constitution in this in this manipulative way in which he has served two terms and then stepped back and then come back now for two terms. But according to this self-same Constitution, which is uh, in, in many ways now his Constitution, uh, though it began in, in the Yeltsin administration, um, he really is term limited out six years from, from now. Um, that said, it's very hard to see which of the many historical factors that have led to revolutions from below, in European history at least, might possibly rise to a level where Putin, A, couldn't handle it, uh, and B, would actually be uh, defeated. Um, the next generation, this has always been the sort of, uh, you know, uh, red herring of, of Russian political conversation. Uh, this is now the the Russian millennials. I think are aptly described by many as the Putins. You know, these are people voting in Sunday's election uh, who have really not experienced in their in their politically aware lives any president other than Putin. On the one hand, there could be a sense of ennui and disconnection from politics. On the other hand. Um, he has defined for them a totally different reality in Russia, one that is maybe more akin to, you know, the Tsardom of the 19th century. And there, there is a correlation in Russian history between times where Russia is on the rise and on the march in the world. Russian citizens tend to be living relatively better at home, and Russian rulers are therefore more popular. Um, and if we sitting here in the West, uh, as Emma rightly noted, uh, almost every other headline describes how Putin is on the march and Russia is somehow on the rise. It's now a great global actor, right? A threat to the world order. Um, again, if you're on Team Russia, these are all marks of success. And that tends to correlate in history, even though it's an imperfect correlation, with times when Russian leaders are pretty popular and people feel like they're doing okay at home, even if compared to the United States or Western Europe, they're not. Um, perception is reality. And as you noted, I think that Putin has been remarkably successful at figuring out where the, the sort of the critical failures might come and reshaping the, the economy to try and prevent that before it becomes too big a problem. So bumping up pensions, as you mentioned, when it looked like low income for pensioners was going to be a problem, um, cutting back on military expenditure a little in the last couple of years when it looked like it was going to start sucking up just too much of the, of the social spending budget. So he's been quite effective at this, I think. So with that said, let's let's turn to the US. Um, because Russia has been in the news this year, primarily because of its relationship with the US, not because of anything particularly interesting in Russian domestic politics. Um, and President Trump has been himself oddly ambivalent towards Russia. He appears to admire Putin personally. No idea whether that's sort of the strongman act or, or something else. Um, but US-Russian relations really haven't been this bad, probably in the post-Cold War period, maybe even slightly before. Um, so what do we think the biggest points of friction are in that relationship? Um, where, where are we going to see continued conflict? Well, uh, so this is in some ways much, much simpler 
than uh, almost any public discussion about the U.S.-Russia relationship recognizes. We're already in a conflict with Russia. It's not when are we going to be at war, when are we going to be in a new Cold War. We're in a conflict, okay? It's just that it's a 21st century conflict in which the instruments of war, I think it's fair to, to call them that, you know, are varied. They're not all bullets and, uh, and artillery shells and, and jets and, and ships and things like that. Some of them are, you know, instruments of economic warfare. Some of them are instruments of information warfare, cyber warfare, uh, you know, black or gray operations. So the things that are, you know, ostensibly private actors, but everybody understands they're not all, you know, exactly what I'm referring to. All of this has already occurred. Um, and I think there's been a recognition for a long time on the Russian side that they are on a war footing against the United States, NATO and the West. I think that recognition, especially thanks to this brazen attack on uh, uh, the former Russian agent and his daughter living in the UK, um, you know, revelations about the extent of Russian hacking uh, directed against the American political system and sort of the Amer American, you know, you might almost say the, the, the collective body politic, if not American democracy, which is a bit of an abstraction. The realization is now dawning on Americans more and more, oh, okay, these people actually really are at war with us now. That's very scary on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, I kind of welcome clarity, uh, definition of terms, if you will, ab about the nature of this very dangerous moment in this very important relationship. Because if you look back at the history of the Cold War, and I, and I wouldn't argue here that we're back in the Cold War. There are so many ways in which it's not, uh, like the Cold War. But if you look back at that history, you know, the, the worst and most dangerous moments when we walked the closest to the precipice of mutual and global destruction were usually those that give ro gave rise uh, to, to some clarity afterwards, some efforts to contain and, uh, if you will, kind of manage the competition so that we could have, for instance, nuclear arms control, or we could end, you know, reckless nuclear testing. Uh, I think it's going to be a longer time coming because it's much more ambiguous to us now what exactly is the risk that we're running. It's a lot less clear than, you know, a nuclear weapon exploding in New York City. Um, but these are very serious risks. The fact that the Russians have been able to attack and exploit really big, really serious fissures in the American body politic um, are, of course, as much about the existence of those fissures in the first place as they are about the Russian perception that they can get away with it and that they don't have vulnerabilities of their own that America's vaunted cyber and intelligence capabilities could exploit. So we've clearly got to address both sides of that equation. Yeah, I mean, so it seems to me that the debate that we've been having, you know, in America, but in the West more broadly, is where is the line? Where do we draw the line where we say this is what Russia is doing is an unacceptable act? Um, you know, and so for some people that was that was Ukraine, for some people it was back in Georgia in 2008. But for a lot more people, it has been some of these sort of cyber attacks, uh, election meddling, or in, in the case of the UK, perhaps just this poisoning the other day, which as unpleasant as it is to say, there, there is just a qualitative difference between a former spy slipping in his bathtub and using a nerve agent in a public place that ends up sickening a bunch of British citizens as well. And so where that line is seems to be the debate that we're having here in the West. Yeah. And I think you know, like most debates over foreign threats, <clears throat> unfortunately to me, there's a lot of 
uh, risk of threat inflation here because it's not the Cold War again. Russia is a dwindling power in many ways, uh, far away from us, uh, and I don't really see um, uh, the fire in, in most cases. I'm not saying we have the same goals <laughs> that Russia does in most of the parts of the world. We don't, obviously. We're going we're gonna to compete and potentially you know, have um, run-ins, like in Syria and places like that. But, uh, you know, and, I, and I, I'm you know, horrified as the next person at the idea that somehow Russia sort of was so good at meddling in the uh, election. But uh, I, don't, I don't sense that that actually had very much of an impact. Uh, and and the idea that you know uh, there are many, however, who are using these examples to really foment a lot of concern that I, I'm concerned will take us too far into a combative approach. And you know, Matt, as you pointed out, Putin thrives on the narrative that the West is coming after him. I, I don't see why you need to give him that. So I, I guess that provides a good segue into the the big remaining question, which is how we do deal with Russia moving forward. Obviously, Putin is here for at least another six years. The the fantasy of the idea that there is a better Russian government on the horizon that we will somehow be able to work with is is no longer really with us. Um, And so how do we work within all these constraints and the fact that Russia clearly does see the West as an enemy to try and not ratchet up tensions even further? Look, I think uh, there are two sets of two. This is pretty easy to remember that, you know, every serious American foreign policy practitioner, politician, uh, analyst, uh, journalist who who deals with Russia ought to remember. So the first set of two is um, if we sit around waiting for Russia to change and be like us, then, you know, that's fine. That's that's a, a certain kind of strategy, I suppose. It might eventually. But then it means we have to more or less accept what Russia is until that happens. And that's not very satisfying, uh, especially if what Russia is until then causes a whole lot of problems that come home to roost for us. Um, and I think that the second mistaken conception that we hear all the time about Russia is that we can drive that change, that we can somehow get into Russian domestic politics into Putin's head, uh, into the pocketbooks of the oligarchs around Putin, and we can transform the way that Russia behaves either at home or in the world. Um, But either way, I think the track record shows us that tends to back backfire pretty badly for a whole host of reasons I won't get into. So so what instead are the, the two basic things I'd recommend? So number one is we know pretty well how to do deterrence. We know how to do it in a number of different realms, starting, of course, with nuclear. We did it for half a century. And the measure of our success is the fact that we are all still breathing. Uh, we can continue and should continue to do it in the nuclear realm. It's going to require some more work uh, to get it refined, to get it right. Uh, But we need to now expand a deterrence framework to encompass some of the other areas in which Russia has already struck at us. So that's going to have to include conventional security as well. Look, we have a NATO alliance that obligates us to defend allies in Europe. To the extent that Russia poses a conventional military threat to those allies, deterrence either works or it doesn't, and we've got to take that problem very seriously. Um, Similarly, in areas of what you might call um, what has been termed, or I don't love the term, kind of hybrid threats, so actions by ostensibly private actors or these things that fall somehow short of an armed attack, but they have all the feeling of an armed attack. Look, we can deter these things. Again, it's by being very clear and credible about defining what it is that we won't accept, threatening a consequence that is unacceptably bad to the other side. And the other side simply has to know that we mean it and that we'll do it. And that means sometimes we're going to have to do it. 
if in fact the other side crosses our red lines. Um, but then we come into these tricky areas of, well, there's asymmetric power and asymmetric capability, and Trevor's very right about this. You know, the Russian economy is worth a trillion dollars. Our economy is worth $20 trillion. The Russian economy is relatively globally integrated, but at the end of the day, an economy that, that, that's that small, where a relatively small number of people kind of represent the global integration of the economy, uh, many of them are, are still unbanked, if you will, um, you know, cutting them off from the wonderful, sophisticated tools of advanced 21st century finance actually doesn't really damage Putin's base that much. And so they have an asymmetric power to strike at us if we concentrate on only financial instruments in terms of retaliation. So I think we, we can do deterrence more effectively if we think in terms of apples and apples sometimes. We have to remain consistent with our values as we do that. Okay, so I'm not advocating here that we do spy versus spy against Putin and his and his dirty warriors around the world. I am advocating that we think much more in terms of traditional deterrence than the almost magical thinking of, well, sanctions will eventually persuade them that they're wrong and there'll be sort of a, a grand council of oligarchs and the Russians will conclude that, that their behavior has been bad and they'll come and apologize because that's not going to happen. I'm, I'm skeptical. I, what you say makes a lot, a lot of sense. I, I agree with you 1,000% on the first set of two. Um, they're not going to change anytime soon, nor do we have much of a role in changing Russian society. I, that's fantastical. Um, I, deterrence in all realms, can't disagree there. Um, but the, the question I have is how much uh, can we influence Russian behavior um, at sort of the the last sort of couple of decimal points? If, if our, you know, roughly trillion dollars of defense and war spending a year hasn't been enough to deter them from doing these things, tweaking it, doing a little bit better here or there. Like, I, I just don't see that as, if they weren't deterred yet, forget it. That's, I mean, they're doing stuff that's so gray, it's going to be really hard to deter in the cyber info realm very meaningfully. I, that's just going to be tough. I, I think we're going to have to live with more chaos, frankly. Well, I, I do think that's right, Trevor. And and thank you for reminding me. I, I get on my soapbox often on deterrence, and then I forget about the second point, which is engagement. Um, so, so the thing about leverage is, uh, I think Archimedes said this, right? Give me a long enough lever and a place to stand. The thing is, we don't have a place to stand anymore. We've got tons of levers, but we've eroded the foundations of stuff that comes of successful U.S.-Russia interaction that we could potentially withhold, but there isn't any more stuff to withhold. So what I would argue is you, you, you leaven or balance the tough deterrent messaging and the tough deterrent reality that you're right, may not work in all cases. You may have to accept a certain amount of chaos, uh, but you leaven that with areas where you do see potential benefits um, based on relatively consistent or at least um, compatible interests between Russia and the United States. We're not going to persuade them to do things that are fundamentally at odds with their worldview or their interests. Um, but, you know, you think about the Arctic, you think about energy, engagement, space, health cooperation, um, various different areas of investment. Boeing sold $50 billion worth of aircraft to Russia in 2010. You know, Pepsi acquired Russia's biggest drinks maker. Ford sold the most popular foreign brand car in Russia for three years running in the late 2000s. So, I mean, there are plenty of areas where if we actually build on success, then we also arm ourselves for the future and we reduce the incentives or we create incentives why the Russians wouldn't want to pull the rug out from under the relationship that at present we have actually eliminated in the sort of fantastical hope that we would transform the relationship through pressure. 
Well, I think actually that's a really good setup for my last question. Just a very quick one for you, which is um, what you're advocating sounds extremely Canaanite. And obviously you're the director of the, the Canon Institute, but what do you think George Cannon would advise us to do today? It, it so happens we're, we're sitting in a studio here, but if we were in my office, um, I would kind of gaze um, wistfully and with great reverence up to my icon of George Kennan in the appropriate uh, iconographic corner of my office. Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm only half kidding. Obviously, the, the man was imperfect in many, many ways, but I think he was a genius uh, where it comes to American foreign policy strategy. Um, he was in many ways the consummate insider-outsider, and so he looked at the United States with a critical outsider's eye, having spent a tremendous amount of time both both outside the Washington, New York elite, he was from the Midwest, um, and uh, outside the country altogether, living many years in Europe. Um, and so he understood that when the basic precepts of American democratic governance, American free market prosperity, um, all of the forces that made America so compelling and competitive in the 20th century. When those things were firing on all cylinders, that the United States was essentially an unstoppable force in the world, in, in foreign relations, and should still use its power judiciously. And he thought very carefully about the ways in which that should be done. But that the origin of that power was 99% was at home and only 1% in the way that stripy pants diplomats conducted themselves abroad. Um, this insight has been almost totally forfeited from American foreign policy. It has become in an era of the last 30 years of, of what I, I would call almost intuitive comfort or expectation of American uh, predominance. This, this um, lazy foreign policy of basically telling others what we expect them to do and assuming that they'll do it because they want us to approve of them and like them and hand out cookies, uh, metaphorically or actually. Uh, and and I, I just don't think it works uh, if it ever did. And, and I think what Kennan would say most of all is let's get our house in order. Uh, we address those those yawning fissures that the Russians have exploited in our partisan, vicious, um, you know, uh, uh, dishonesty-filled uh, politics. And there won't be so many fissures for the Russians to exploit. And we can deter them by denying them the ability to mess with our domestic politics. Just one example. And the same thing with the transatlantic alliance and the same thing with this, the, the inequities of the global economy, right? We address those problems that have been building for years and decades uh, and the vulnerabilities are much, much less. And then this is Kennan's you know, final, I think, genius insight if you go back to the long telegram, which I, I've written about this, 98% of which is totally relevant for today, though we are dealing with Putin and not Stalin. The great insight is this is a fundamentally flawed system, the Russian system. Flawed in many of the same ways it's always been flawed and flawed in some new ways, which will collapse of its own weight sooner or later and which will create an opening then for a powerful, confident, effective American model to be much more persuasive and influential. But if we don't have that model ready to go, or if we get preoccupied with taking them down now, like Don Quixote, you know, uh, tilting against windmills, uh, then we are going to fail. Well, I, I think that's a really great note to end on. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and thanks to everybody at home for listening. If you want to continue the conversation, you can always find us on Twitter using the hashtag FPPowerProblems. As always, I'd like to thank our producer, Jeff Geld. And if you liked this episode or the podcast in general, say something nice about us on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks. Thanks.